Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. Uh, Genesis 24, we're continuing our series through uh, the book of Genesis. If you are uh, with us for the first time or uh, you're infrequently or um, haven't been coming very long, uh, it's our practice uh, to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, we've, We've Generally, we'll bounce from Old to New Testament. We try to balance long and short. Try. Um, but at least that's our, our goal, is to, to um, work our way through uh, books of the Bible. That way, um, you don't have to listen to what I want to say week in and week out. Uh, we sit instead uh, all alike under God's Word. Uh, Genesis chapter 24. Um, I'll warn you, it is the longest chapter in Genesis. But I'm not going to read it all. Uh, it is our practice to stand when we, when we read God's Word. So let me ask that you do that now. Um, I will read only through verse 27. And yes, I'm putting these on. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son Back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom No man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. 
And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. And then the young woman ran and told her her mother's household about these things. The grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who authored this chapter, who the one who recounts this event to us through Moses, writing your very words, the one who has preserved these words for us, that you would now use them to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps a um, reason to, to question our practice sometimes. You get these long chapters, and I feel bad asking people to stand for At least I didn't read all 67 verses, right? Uh, Darius Rucker is a, is a musician. He used to be the singer, uh, the lead singer for Hootie and the Blowfish. Um, a, a 90s sort of college band out of um, South Carolina, but we won't hold that against them. They were still pretty good. Uh, he now has a uh, pretty successful country music career, something evidently he really wanted all along. Um, now he's, he's singing country music. He has this song called This. And the song recounts basically all the makes and misses of his life that have added up to put him where he is now. It recounts all the the stoplights he missed or the ones that caught him or all these these sort of events in his life, even even getting that rejection letter from the college of his dreams. All these events in his past that, that go together, that add up, that, well, thank God for all I missed, because it led me here to this. And for him, this is a happy marriage and a daughter and all kinds of other things in his life. But it's a song that essentially celebrates God's providence in the ordinary. We get frustrated. We think it's the end of the world when we get that rejection letter from the College of Our Dreams. He, looking back on it, can say, thank God for all I missed. Because it led me here to this. It's a song that celebrates God's providence 
in the ordinary. That's this chapter. This is a chapter that celebrates God's providence in the ordinary, in the ordinary events of life. It's it's one story. It's the longest chapter in all of Genesis, and it tells one love story. It's, It's just one long story with a lot of repetition. This is why we stopped at verse 28 and we'd read more, you would have read the same thing over again, but from someone else's point of view, someone else sort of recounting the events. It tells just the story of how Isaac, how Isaac got his wife. How Isaac got his wife. How, how, you know. That's what I wanted to say, evidently. It celebrates God's providence in the ordinary. Notice First, we see Abraham's faith. Abraham is old, verse 1. Sarah, you recall, his wife is now dead. She's, she's buried. She's in her tomb. Uh, she's in the, 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 the tomb in the one plot of ground that Abraham actually owns in the promised land. Isaac is 40-ish, uh, unmarried, uh, still living in his mom and dad's tent, now his dad's tent. Um, He's still living at home uh, with no wife. Abraham is too old to make the trip. He's he's too old to go back to his his people and uh, to find a wife. And so he grabs his servant. But he doesn't grab just any servant. He grabs the oldest. The one who's in charge of all that he has. It's it's one that he knows and trusts. The one who has, has proven himself over and over again throughout his Life, a trustworthy, reliable uh, servant, and Abraham says, "Look, I'm I'm going to give you a task. I'm going to going to make you swear an oath, make you swear a, a promise to me, and I'm going to give you a a responsibility. And I can't trust this to just anybody. It's got to be someone that I know will do exactly as I command." There's the fear, of course, right? That Abraham won't be alive to see his servant come home? I mean, that has to be in the back of his mind somewhere. It's, it's got to be there as he sets this servant on his mission. So Abraham exercises wisdom in uh, choosing a servant, a reliable servant, to go and find a wife for his son. Notice the oath, verses 3-8, to eight, that... Abraham asks his servant to make. It has really two parts. One part has to do with the the woman whom Isaac will marry, and then the other has to do with Isaac himself and and his dwelling place. Notice verse 3. Do not let Isaac marry a Canaanite. Go back to my people, go back to my homeland, and and find a wife for him there among my kinsmen. Do not let him marry a Canaanite. Now look, it's been 60, 70 years, maybe more, since Abraham and Sarah left. I mean, it's not like Abraham's brother. It's not like Nahor could sort of follow the life of Abraham on Facebook and Instagram, right? You go on trips, you go on vacation, and you post pictures left and right 
These are all the things we did while we were on our trip. Hey, look, the top of a mountain in Colorado. Hey, look, uh, Disney World. Hey, look, you know, we post these pictures. And so, and we send Christmas cards every year, right? So that friends, family, these people we don't get to see very often, they at least get to watch the kids grow up over time. This, this, there was no Instagram world. Nahor's people, Abraham's relatives, it's not like they've been spent the last 70 years and can go back through Instagram and go, this sure looks like, I think, you know, or, or hey, Rebecca, look, Isaac's a pretty good looking guy, right? I mean, you could, or grab the Christmas card from last December. I mean, look how much he's grown up. Look how much he's changed. There, there's none of that. And it's into that world, it's, it's there that Abraham says, look, I need you to go back to my people and find a wife for Isaac. Don't let him marry a Canaanite. It's about a month-long trip. It's going to take the servant, especially with all the camels and the gear and the stuff he takes, it's, it's going to take about a month to get there. Seems like it would be a whole lot easier to marry a local girl. Right? I mean, wouldn't it just be a whole lot easier? I mean, Abraham, I get it. But look around you. I mean, there, Isaac knows some You know, Isaac goes to school with some, I don't know, they didn't have school that way. But they, Isaac goes to school with some very nice, attractive Canaanite girls. Let, let him just choose one of those. Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't it make more sense? This is going to cost money and, and time and, you know, a cut, who knows, at least a month of my life getting there and a month of my life coming back, not to mention how long it may take me once I'm there. And Abraham, you may not be alive for this. It, there are all sorts of seemingly really good reasons to say, Isaac should just marry a Canaanite. Let's just, let's just pick one of the local Canaanite girls. Let's just marry one of them. How am I going to find my way? And if I find my way, how am I going to find this family? And if I find this family, how am I going to pick the right girl? And how do I know what her background's like? And I don't know anything about what she's been. I don't know her character at all. It just seems like it would make a whole lot more sense to marry a local Canaanite girl. But Abraham insists, you must not. He must not marry a Canaanite. Abraham remembers something. Abraham remembers a promise. Abraham remembers because you hear it in the way he speaks to his servant, in the, the way he recounts to his servant, hey, you know, you're worried that she's going to say, I'm not sure I want to go with you. Well, the God who brought me here, the God who promised me this land, the God who has been at work in, in bringing me here, he's going to send his angel before you and he's going to prepare the way so that there will be a woman who will respond and say, yes, I'll be glad to come. If not, then you're released from the vow. Abraham remembers something. He remembers a promise. The land they're in, it's, it's not much. It's a field with a cave that Sarah's buried in. He doesn't have tons of land in the promised land yet. He has a field. But it's a piece. It's a piece of the promised land. It's a, it's a down payment of what Abraham and his descendants will inherit. In other words, 
he's essentially saying to his servant, Isaac stands to inherit this land. The Canaanites, to disinherit this land. Don't mix that marriage. Don't marry with someone who is going to disinherit this land. Don't marry one of them because they're not promised this land. In fact, they're promised the opposite. I've been promised this land and it's going to be taken from them and given to me. So why would you marry someone who's supposed to lose the land? You see the confusion? It doesn't make any sense. He's, he's in essence claiming God's promises on Isaac's behalf. Under any circumstances. Not under any circumstances is he to marry a Canaanite. And in the back of your mind are Paul's words in 1st and 2nd Corinthians that you marry only believers, marry only in the Lord. You stand to inherit eternity with Christ and an unbeliever does not. And so why would you, why would you mix that marriage? It's the same sort of concept. The, the second part of the oath is that the servant under any circumstance, no circumstances whatsoever is Isaac supposed to go back to his people. You, you can imagine the temptation. He's 40-something and living in a tent in a land that's only sort of barely his and really not yet. And, and, and if he went back with his servant, he would find, you know, a city with actual houses and actual family and, and some pretty comfortable things. The temptation for Isaac to stay could be great. But he also doesn't want Isaac anywhere except in the promised land. He wants Isaac to keep his feet right there in the land that belongs to them. The servant's concern in verse 5 seems legitimate enough. Maybe she won't want to come back with me. But Abraham says, look, Yahweh brought me here. Yahweh's promised us this land. He will work it out. He will go before you and prepare the way. And if not, if she refuses, then you're freed from the oath. Better that than that Isaac should marry a Canaanite or should he should go back to that land. Abraham's faith is clear. He's, he's claiming that which isn't yet because God has promised that it will be. And that's enough for him. God has said, this will be. And Abraham says, okay, it will be. And it's not yet, but I'm going to grab hold of it anyway. Don't miss Abraham's own sanctification in this. The first time we meet Abraham in Genesis, the promises of God are in his ears. The last time he speaks in Genesis, the promises of, God's are on his, of God are on his lips. This is the last words Abraham says in Genesis. Or, or you could turn it around another way. The first time he speaks in Genesis, he's telling his wife, hey, look, when we go to Egypt, you're going to have to say you're my sister because God's promised to take care of me and he probably needs a little help with that. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to lie. We're going to tell a partial truth that's intended to confuse Pharaoh and, and you just say you're my sister because, because well, because we got to do some stuff to make sure to help God in this process. It was the first time he spoke. The first time he speaks, hey Sarah, let's lie. Because, because God needs us to lie to make sure that 
um, that the promise comes true. The last thing he says, God's promises on his lips. I don't need to lie. It's wrong to lie, Sarah. We made a mistake, Sarah. We never should have lied, Sarah. I'm claiming God's promises. He will do it. We see Abraham's faith. We also see the servant's faithfulness. Notice, we didn't read the whole chapter and, and for obvious reasons. Um, the passage goes out of his way. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing this chapter, goes out of his way to make sure we know that the servant has done exactly what Abraham said to do. He follows Abraham's instructions precisely. Look at verse 12. He, he claims and he said, O oh Lord God. Notice, he gets to the well right at the time when women will come out to the well and collect water to take home uh, for the evening. And he falls to his knees and he prays. And he uses, there's that word, there's that Lord in all caps in verse 12, O Yahweh, Abraham's God is his God. O covenant-making, covenant-keeping, covenant-faithful God, you have brought me here now. Grant me success. And notice he doesn't want success for success's sake. He wants God's promises fulfilled. He prays that God would guide and direct his steps, that, that God would bring out the woman he has appointed for Isaac. He doesn't ask for lightning. He doesn't ask for, as the woman walks out, he doesn't ask for you know, this big bright halo kind of shining down where the sun's only shining on her. Oh, you got that music playing, right? Oh, the sun's only shining on her and all the rest of the world around him is dark. Like, here's the one. He doesn't ask for that kind of sign. He doesn't ask for a lightning strike. He doesn't ask for, you know, when, when I, the first woman I see, I want lightning to strike right beside me but not to hurt anybody because then I'll know that that's the one. He doesn't ask for any of those sort of... He doesn't ask for the kind of sign you and I would ask for. It's a regular, normal conversation. I'm going to ask her for water. It's hot. He's been traveling. He's going to ask her for water. And she's going to say, yes, here, here's some water, help yourself. And by the way, I'll also water your camel's as well. He prays for guidance. But, but ordinary kindness, ordinary events. He prays for a woman willing to show hospitality, willing to show kindness to him and to his camels. And notice how the, the servant responds after it's all said and done in verse 26. He prays yet again. He says, who are you? Who are your people? What family do you belong to? And she tells him, I'm Bethuel, Milcah, Nahor. And he's like, wait a minute, Nahor. That's, that's my master's brother. I'm, I've found the right person. And he drops to his knees again. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master, who has not forsaken his steadfast love. 
not only does he pray for guidance, but then he praises God for his guidance. How often do you pray for wisdom? How often do you pray for guidance? How often do you pray for some sort of of guidance and direction only to then forget to go back and thank Him for it when you've gotten it? You exercise biblical wisdom. Maybe it's ordinary events. And you go, well, that, that, that wasn't very special. God didn't do that. There was no lightning strike. That wasn't from God. That was just a, a normal, nice person saying, can I get you some water? How often do we fail to recognize God's providence in the ordinary? And then you see in verse 33, he's finally there at, at uh, Nahor's house, Bethuel's house with Laban, Rebekah's sister. They fix him this great feast. And he says, verse 33, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. <laughs> Carrying out Abraham's mission was more important to him than food. Carrying out the, the mission of the one who sent him was more important to him than eating. And in the back of your mind are Jesus' own words. It's my food to do the will of my Father who sent me. It's my very food I feast on. It is nourishing to me to carry out the will of my Master. And notice he communicates, this servant communicates uh, God's blessings on his Master he shows up with ten camels. I mean, that's that's a ten-car garage, and every car is a Mercedes. It's the it's the it's the travel style lifestyle of the richest rich and famous kind of. Tra- Not everybody traveled by camel. It was for the the wealthy, the important people, the special people, and he shows up with ten of them. He gives gold and jewels and and a ring. And you can tell that Laban and Rebekah and their household recognizes the wealth of Abraham right away. This passage, by the way, has something to say about the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's the fifth commandment. In case you've forgotten which one is number... Remind me which one is number five again. It's honor your father and mother. Here's a servant showing honor. It it, it extends, the commandment extends beyond just your parents, but to anyone set over you, a boss, for example. Employees, can your boss trust you to carry out their mission and vision even when they're not there? Are you working as diligently even when they're not looking over your shoulder as when they are? We see Abraham's faith. We see the servant's faithfulness. We also see Rebecca's fitness. And I don't mean her like health. I don't mean her that she's fit and in shape. I mean her fitness, her appropriateness to be Isaac's 
wife. Notice in verse 15, she's coming out to, she's carrying this big jar on her shoulder and she's coming to gather water to take home for the evening. And we're told in verse 15 what the servant won't know until verse 24. And that is, she's the right one. This is actually a relative of Abraham. She's actually Abraham's grandniece. And that's the the relationship. And so we know, even before the servant does, hey servant, this is the one, this is the one. You're starting to get excited. Like, wait, wait, wait. She fits the bill. She fits the requirement. She's a, a relative of Abraham, just as she was, as the servant was instructed. And then you get these glimpses of her character traits. Notice in verse 17 and 18, she's generous. She, the, the servant literally asks for a sip or a swallow. I mean, it would it'd be like you going to somebody and saying, hey, can I have a sip of that? You're really just asking for just a, just a quick hit of that water. That's all he asked for. And, and her response, drink my Lord, the, the response is, here, here's the jar, drink it all. Drink as much as you want. She doesn't just meet the the sip uh, request. She goes above and beyond. And then her generosity extends to the camels, to the animals as well, verse 19. He drinks, and then she says, I will draw water for your camels also. She's generous. But she also diligent and perseveres to the end. A camel, there are ten of them. A camel, after that month-long journey, could have lost as much as 25 gallons of water. There are ten of them. And she makes sure, verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, or verse 20 for that matter, she drew for all his camels. She doesn't just kind of grab a little bit, let each one have a... So not only is she generous, but she's diligent and perseveres to the end to make sure that all the animals have something to drink. She's hospitable. Notice in verse 25, we have plenty of room, we have plenty of places for you to sleep, we have plenty of places for your men to sleep, we have, can take care of your animals, we've got food for them. Come to the house, we'll take care of you. She doesn't even say, well, hold on, let me call my dad and make sure it's okay first. Hang on, you stay here, I'm going to run home and make sure we've got enough. Come on, just stop on by, we'd love to have you. We've got plenty of of places for you to stay and, and for your animals. She's hospitable, she's diligent, perseveres to the end, she's generous, She's unmarried, she's a virgin, and she's attractive. She fits all of the requirements. She actually sounds like somebody, doesn't she? She she should remind you of something. There actually may be a couple of people running through your head. She sounds a little bit like Abraham. You remember Abraham sitting outside his tent, and he looks up, and there's these three men coming at him. One of them, we find out, is a a pre-incarnate form of Christ and two angels. And what did he do? He ran to meet them. And said, come, stop, sit, rest, eat, let me feed you. He runs to the tent. Sarah, quick, make some food. He runs out to the field. Quick, slaughter this lamb and prepare the food. 
She sounds just like the servant's master. She sounds just like Abraham. She's going to fit perfectly into their house. But she also sounds like the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, the whole section, the last half of that proverb, that chapter, on what an excellent wife is like. Proverbs 31, verse 15. She provides food for her house. Here it's, it's water. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. Not exactly poor, but certainly someone who needs a place to stay and needs food and needs water. Proverbs 31, 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The servant recognizes this woman, Rebecca, is fit to be Isaac's wife. For that matter, she'd make a great wife for any man, fitting all the these criteria, these these examples of the excellent wife in Proverbs. 31. We see Abraham's faith, the servant's faithfulness, we see Rebekah's fitness, and lastly we see God's favor. Of all the people in this chapter, the two probably most confusing are Laban and Bethuel. Bethuel is Rebekah's father, Laban is her brother. Why does he handle all of the negotiations? That should be his job, that should be Bethuel's job. Well, maybe he's dead, except he speaks in this chapter. He speaks in verse 50 and in verse 58. Laban, we will discover later, Lord willing, in the rest of Genesis, turns out to be a a greedy, manipulative sort of man. Notice what Moses tells us about him in verse 30. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms. Rebecca, that's a, that's a new ring. That's a new gold ring. That, that's a new... That's a big gold bracelet. It's, it's the wealth of the servant. It's the wealth of Abraham that catches his attention. It's the shiny new gold. And he goes, ooh, that looks, this, I'm getting excited. This is getting, this is going to turn out great for me and for Rebecca and for my family. It's the wealth that catches Laban's attention. But it's odd to me. They're certainly hospitable, Laban and Bethuel. They fix a meal, welcome them into their home. But of all the people to tell you what this chapter is about, it comes from their lips. It doesn't come from Abraham's mouth. It doesn't come from the faithful servant's mouth. It doesn't come from fit Rebecca's mouth. It comes from these sketchy, What's your role, greedy men, Laban and Bethuel? Look at verse 50. 
they've recounted the story. So Rebecca runs into the house. She tells the story evidently fairly quickly. The servant comes in and recounts the entire story again. Uh, that we have recorded for us. And then we have verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. They recognize God's providence in the ordinary. They're the ones that go, clearly, God has orchestrated all of this. Clearly, God's hand has been in every bit of this. Clearly, God is at work. Who am I to stop it? They're the ones that point us to the fact that this is just a, an ordinary story about an ordinary sequence of events in order to fulfill a very ordinary purpose, finding a wife. But it was all accomplished through the God who orchestrated every step and every word. This is from God. We see God's providence in the ordinary. Let me make a a couple of applications from uh, this passage. Uh, first of all, this, this teaches us something about love and marriage. As kids, we like to sing, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes so-and-so with a baby carriage. That's not true in this passage. The love comes after the marriage in the very last verse. See, here's the downside of not reading all 67 verses. Look at verse 67 with me. The very last sentence, so Isaac, uh, well, before that. Um, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. You think you love your spouse on the day of your wedding. On the day of your wedding, you have no idea what love is. Our vows are not confessions of how we feel at that moment, but a commitment of how we will live every moment after this one. He's committed to Rebecca. He loves her after he marries her. Love is a commitment, not a feeling. It's not an emotional response to seeing somebody for the first time. It's, it's how you act when you wake up the next morning and go, wow, They really do have morning breath. And their hair really isn't always fixed. Right? A second application. Um, We're good about praying for guidance. We're good about praying for wisdom. We're good about, about praying that God would give us insight and understanding and wisdom about how to go about this event or this thing in our lives or, or I don't know how this meeting is going to go. God, would you, would you guide and direct our conversation? Are we equally good as, are we equally as good at coming back after the fact and going, I know this was just an ordinary meeting or I know this was just an ordinary event. I know this was really pretty ordinary and plain. But God's providence was in it. Nonetheless, are we as quick to come back and praise Him for His providence after the fact? A third application. 
are God's promises more valuable to us than food? The servant actually says, I know you've gone to great lengths to fix this amazing huge meal I can't eat. I'm on a mission to carry out my master's purposes. Are there times when actually God's promises, living out God's promises, carrying them out, seeing them brought to fruition, becomes more important to us even than putting food in our mouths? Does God's work in His world consume us? Oh, that we would hold on to promises like Jesus is building His church and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. We go, I'm kind of scared of evangelism and I don't know that God's really going to do anything. But we have a promise. Oh, that we would latch on to that promise. Oh, that we would, would so hold to the promises even for our own spiritual growth, our own spiritual maturity, our own sanctification. pray that God will make us people who pray for His wisdom and give Him honor and glory when we've gotten it and who love His promises more than anything. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, You have promised to build Your church. You have assured us that the the kingdom of God is is at work in this world and even the defensive gates of hell cannot and will not stand against it. Father, we pray that that Your promises would equip us to go out into a world that opposes the Gospel and live for Christ. May it be our great joy, our great mission to hold more tightly to your promises to your word, to your work in this world, then we would hold to the things of this world. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.